Kidlet. Hello, writers. I'm Alexis. And I'm Brittany. Thank you for joining our community, centered around growth and discovery in the world of Kidlet. Megan E. Freeman is the award-winning author of the middle grade novel in verse dystopian novel Alone. She is also an award-winning teacher and is recognized nationally for speaking and presenting at workshops. I am a huge and have been for, well, since the book released, um, I've been a huge fan of Megan. And I think what drew me to this book when I was in elementary school, I remember reading Hatchet. So I think that's what started like my dystopian kind of um, survival adventure kind of books that I love to read and people who I think I love to read about characters who are on their own. I think I like characters that are either legitimately all on, on their own or they're just outcast in some way and they have to, you know, grow themselves. And so that's what stood out for me with this book is that it's dystopian and kind of survival, but also I had recently really got obsessed with books and verse. And so when I knew there aren't too many dystopian books and verse, and so it really, really excited me. And then, so I read it when it first came out, but then I even might've read an arc. Um, I can't, I think I did. And then over 2020 or Maybe. I don't remember. Anyway, I started writing my own novel and verse dystopian kind of COVID inspired book. And I picked this one back up because I was like, okay, like now I'm going to do it. So that's what all these tabs are, are like how you did things. And we'll talk more about it. But I marked this sucker up because it's just everything I want to write. So my first question for you or our first question is, did this book, did Alone begin as a novel in verse? That is such a nice question. I, and thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be with you both. Um, no, it did not. It started as a novel in prose. It came to me in prose. I wrote it in prose. I revised it for a number of years in prose. I polished it. I submitted it to agents in prose. And, and because it has this sort of compelling hook, right? Like it's a contemporary reimagining of Island of the Blue Dolphins, but set in suburban Colorado, right? So people who knew that book and know that idea were in, were intrigued. And so I got a lot of- Yeah, that I was got another one of my favorite books. <laughs> yeah, it, it's such a great one. Um, I got a lot of requests for full from agents, but nobody wanted to take it on. And so ultimately I realized, okay, people, the, the story is intriguing and compelling, but something's not working with the way I've written it, right? Like ultimately what I concluded was the story was more interesting than the writing. And after a lot of sort of um, reflection, and I went back to all the feedback I'd gotten from different critique partners and from workshops and manuscript critiques and all of that. And I looked at all of it. I literally laid it all, I printed it all out. I highlighted key pieces. I put it on my dining room table and looked down from above, like I was trying to get a 30,000 foot view, right? To see if I could figure out what was wrong. Um, and I was actually in a workshop in an SCBWI workshop with the author, Melanie Crowder, who you may know, she's written a number of middle grade and, and YA and her, her YA novel in verse audacity had just come out. And so she was talking about her process of writing that verse novel. And I remember it was like a, it was like one of those cartoon moments where I could feel light coming down. I could hear angels singing. Like it was truly an epiphany. 
And I thought, oh my gosh, I have to rewrite this book and I have to write it in verse because I had been a poet since I was in fifth grade. I was a published poet and I, and, and I had written poetry my whole life, but for whatever reason, when the idea for this book came, it, when I sat down to write it, it came out in prose. So I went back to the beginning and I started completely over and I rewrote the whole thing in verse. And that's, that's the version that I ultimately polished and revised and was able to get my agent with. Wow. And that's remarkable that you spent years with it as a prose novel, working on it, working on it, working on it, querying, which is, as most of us know, is exhausting. And um, to be humble and open to letting that spark, opening up to that, to say, oh, wait a second, Mm -hmm. maybe here is where I need to go after spending so many years on something. That's really remarkable. It takes a lot of perseverance and being open to that kind of major change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's not to say that I didn't get hugely discouraged and take long breaks because I did both of those things, you know. Um, But there was also because I was so fascinated by this idea, by the premise of a kid having to survive alone for a long period of time in in a modern setting, I knew it was a really good idea. And I was really afraid that if I couldn't figure out how to write it and how to tell it, that the idea would go find another author who would figure it out and who would sell it and publish it. <laughs> so I had, this weird, I had this weird sense of competition, right? With, with I don't know, with, with the muses or something like, no, I'm going to get this. Like, I want to be the one to tell this story. So, so there was a little bit of, um, there was a little bit of, I'm not going to give this up because I really think it could be something great. But I will say too, I shared the book with an, or the manuscript with a number of people along the way. And it was largely those people who like, I'd see them at our SCBWI conference. And then I'd see them a year later and they'd say, how's it going? What's happening with that? And that external accountability, I can't under emphasize how huge that was for me because there were plenty of times when I wanted to just, I just got tired of it. I got frustrated or I got bored or whatever. And I'd want to move on. And I did write other things in the interim, you know, but I'd know like, I'm going to see Kim Tomsick at the next conference and she's going to ask me about it. And I got to have an answer, like sharing my ambitions with other people. And then, and then them being accountability partners for me was really important. That's amazing. So with this querying and then changing your draft so drastically is that something where you sent it back to that publish or you reached back mm-hmm. out and queried again and like did you just explain what you had done or how how was that received by trying to query again that's a great question and i did not do that because the the way i ended up getting my agent was sort of an unexpected um path that opened up and, and let me just interject and say, I think I certainly could have because I changed it so drastically mm-hmm. that I think I could have reached back out, especially to people who might have asked for the full manuscript and then decided to pass, right? Because okay. they were already sort of interested and we had a little bit of a correspondence. I think I could have done that. But what ended up happening was I had put the manuscript together in verse and I went to an SCBWI conference where I had signed up for an intensive with an editor. And the way that, I don't know how those work in other chapters, but in our chapter, that's usually 10 people who sign up. It's a three hour session and you bring 10 copies or 11 copies of your first 10 pages and the editor reads them cold. You read it out loud. The editor reads along cold with you. Everybody else reads. And then the editor just gives feedback right there on the spot. And it's pretty incredible. And you get to hear the, you know, the first 10 pages of everybody in the room. And this editor 
when I got to the to the end and I was reading the verse novel, the verse version, I got to the end and and I turned to him to see what his response would be. And he just looked at me and said, so then what happens? <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, this, that and the other. But like he he was just like, I just want to keep reading. Like, I want to know what's going on. Right. Yeah. And and there was such a warm response in the room. And at the end of the, and I didn't have an agent. Um, and at the end of that workshop, he came up to me afterwards and said, you got to send this to me. And I said, but I don't, I don't have an agent. I knew he didn't work with anybody who wasn't agented. And I said, I don't have an agent. He said, I don't care. I really want to read it. I mean, come to find out he was this huge fan of Castaway and Hatchet. And like, it was just, he loved survival stories. It just happened to be. So I sent it to him and about six months went by and I nudged him. Actually, that's not true. I went home and I polished the heck out of it. (laughs) And then I sent it to him about two months later. And then, and then I waited about six months and I nudged him and he got back to me. And, and, and when he got back to me, he said, has anybody, have you, do you, have you signed with an agent yet? And I said, no. And he said, well, here are some things that you might think about in developing the story. He actually made it a reference to some stuff that happens in the movie Castaway, which happened to be a film I really loved as well. And, and he had some really great suggestions. And then at the end, he said, um, here are five agents who I think might be really good fit for this. And please feel free to use my name as a referral. So I went back, polished and revised again based on what he had said. And then when I sent it to those five agents, I was able to say, you know, like in the subject header of the query, referral from, and then the editor's name. And it's amazing how people open those emails instead of just going to the bottom of the slush pile, right? So I got responses really quickly. And a couple of people didn't even read it and said, oh, I don't do, you know, I'm not interested in novels in verse. But one of those agents said, but you should send it to this person. So I got another referral from from that. Um, Anyway, long story long, I ended up signing with one of those agents. And that's Deborah Warren at East West Literary, who who has represented me since 2019. So so it was one of those stories where because I went to that workshop, kind of to your point, Brittany, because I kept trying to 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 make it better and understand what it needed. It ended up leading me to some people who ended up ultimately um, getting the book into the right people's hands. Absolutely. That's what it sounds like to me, that it was perseverance. It was having a positive community around you, taking advantage of opportunities. Like you just said, going to that workshop with your local Mm -hmm. chapter, just keep, keep going. Exactly. And that's wonderful. Yep. So most of your poems in alone are free verse. Can you talk about what effect you believe a free verse poem has on the reader? Um, I think that's an interesting question. And and most of what I write is free verse. I, I write very little informal forms that doesn't tend to be where my hand takes my pen. Um, and and I can t- I don't I don't know about the effect on the reader. I can tell you I can tell you what I think the effect of the overall novel in verse has on a reader, which is different than a prose novel, and and the poetry is really key to that. Which is that the novel a novel in verse is so spare. There are so few words. I, I think there are something like thirty thousand or thirty five thousand words in alone, even though it's a, you know a four hundred page book. But there's so much white space on the page, and a novel in verse really invites the reader to collaborate and co-create the story in a way that a prose novel doesn't. A prose novel is going to describe the setting for you, right? A novel in verse is just going to give you a little bit of information or a little hint of something 
that's hopefully going to invite the reader's imagination to fill in the space. Um, in a workshop a number of years ago, Jason Reynolds, the incredible Jason Reynolds, was talking about poetry. And he said, there may only be 10 words on the page, but there are 10,000 words underneath. And that's exactly right. So, so the 10,000 words underneath are there for the reader to excavate. So just I'll just give you a quick example of, of some of what I've heard from readers since Alone came out, and I've been doing a lot of school visits. So I was Alone is set in a suburban setting, right? A contemporary mm -hmm. suburban setting, which is where I was living when I was writing it. I went to do a school visit at a really rural school in Texas, north of Austin. And a lot of the kids in that school were farm kids and ranch kids and kids who are very comfortable in those kinds of settings. And when I, and I always ask them when they've read the book, I say, what decisions does Maddie make in the book that you disagree with or that you would do differently? And, and a whole bunch of them raised their hands and they said, well, I, I don't understand why she doesn't just go get a generator and hook it up and use the generator for power, right? And I'm thinking, yeah, of course, because in your world, those exist and you know how to use them and that's what you would do and it would be brilliant, right? Maddie has no concept of a generator because Megan has no concept of a generator, right? But, but there's enough space on the page of the book that when those kids are reading it, they're seeing their own settings and they're creating, they're, they're seeing themselves in the story and they're creating the world that they're familiar with. So then a couple of months later, I was at a school in, um, in, in suburban Colorado and it was a bilingual school, largely Hispanic population. And I was with these great girls and they were, they were all in fifth grade. They'd read it as a book club and I got to meet them in person after they finished it. And they said, we have a, we have a question. We have a question. What happens to her quinceanera? And I was like, oh my gosh, right? Like she, because she's 12 in the beginning of the story, she's 16 at the end of the story. What happens to her quinceanera? These girls are super excited for their quinceaneras, right? And and there's enough space on the page that for them, Maddie is Latina and she's gonna have a quinceanera when she's 15, just like them. So, and so we had a whole conversation like, well, during COVID, what did people do? And and can you have a quinceanera later? Do you have to be 15? Could you have one when you're 16? And we decided that probably her parents would allow her to have one when she's 16 and it would just be a little late. And like everybody felt much better. Like, okay, she doesn't have to miss it, right? She's going to get get her quinceanera. But, but it was those two experiences in contrast were so helpful to me in understanding that the poetry leaves space for the reader. And, and part of my challenge as an author writing in verse is to give my readers just enough information that they can fill in the rest of the story. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Give yeah. them some time, give them something to um, grasp and not, and feel grounded, yep. you know, and, and connected to your main character, but yep. still enough that they can be immersive and in, in, in fill in the blanks as you had said. Exactly. And as far as craft is concerned, what that really means is that the, the process of revising the poems is always, uh, there's, it's always distillation. I'm distilling down and down and down, and I'm trying, I'm taking away anything that doesn't need to be there and only leaving the very most essential pieces. So if there's an adjective, you can be sure I've taken it out and put it back in multiple times to, to really test it, to see if it needs to be there. And I mean, every single, every single piece down to the, and, and Alexis, you're, you're writing a novel in verse, so you know what I'm talking about, but every single piece, like whether this should be capitalized, whether this punctuation needs to be here, or maybe this punctuation doesn't need to be here because I'm breaking the line and I'm putting some space in that shows that there's a breath there, that there's a sejura there, right? So it's an extremely microscopic process of, of examining what's there to make sure that it absolutely is critical and has to be there. And if it isn't, then it's coming out.
that's that's for me and not every poet probably thinks that way but it's a very reductive process i'm constantly reducing down is there anything that you keep in mind or consider while writing free verse compared to other styles of poems not consciously when i'm writing i really try to not um not worry about stuff or maybe it's not mm -hmm. a not maybe it's what i do i try to really be playful i try to really play on the page and when I'm talking to young writers and I'm in schools, I use the verb play all the time. We're going to play with this poem. We're going to play with this story. That playfulness that unlocks the freedom and unleashes the freedom that creativity needs to thrive, in my experience. I am really about flow and I'm really about playing with the spacing and with the relationship of words. I love writing on a computer because it's so easy to manipulate things. I often, if I'm writing just a poem, like it's not part of a verse novel, I often write by hand in my notebook first, and then I go to the computer to revise. When I'm drafting in a novel though, I'm writing just right in the computer, but I'm moving stanzas around all the time. And oftentimes I'll get to the end of a poem and realize that the last line I wrote really wants to be the beginning or vice versa. And so I'm constantly, it's, it's like a, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Like I'm constantly moving pieces yeah. around to see what fits best. And in formal verse, there are many more, just like in prose, there are many more rules, right? There are many more boundaries within which to work. And that can be very helpful. That can be very comforting. But in free verse, the boundaries and the style that you choose are just what you've decided and what you've made it. Um, and I find that very fun to play in. That's a fun sandbox to be in. <laughs> yeah. So you have these poems. What then would be a key element that you think the writer would need to take these poems that they've been playing with and turn it into a cohesive story? Right. So, so that's, a, that's a really interesting question because in a, in a traditional collection of poetry, each poem can stand alone. You can open it in the middle and read a poem and it's a complete work of art, right? Just like a, just like a song off an album is a complete work of art. And there is definitely great thought that goes into creating the whole collection and they are in the order that they are in for a reason, but you don't have to read it from the beginning through the end in order to appreciate and access the art. But that's not true in a novel in verse, right? That narrative arc, it drives through the whole story and depends on beginning at the end and reading it sequentially, just like a regular novel in prose does. So I think whether someone is a plotter or a pantser or somewhere in between that all of the rules for writing, and I use that phrase with a little bit of a tongue in cheek because but but all of the truths that hold um, that hold a story together, all of the things that need to be present for that character's development and that that arc and the unfolding of the plot and everything else, that all is exactly the same whether you're writing a novel in verse or a novel in prose. The structure has to be there and the story has to be there and the character has to want something or need something that or, or think they need something. Um, that they can't have and there have to be obstacles and they have to try to overcome them and they have to fail and all everything that's true in a traditional story form has to be true in a novel in verse as well. So so the craft overlaps hugely, I mean entirely. It's just the way the words show up on the page and it's the way the story is told, the form of the story that is unique. And it's, some, you know, think about an, a graphic novel. It's the same thing. The story arc is there, but the form is totally different, totally unique. But but if you just if you're just sitting on the bus with a friend and you're telling them the story, you're going to tell them the story the same way, whether it's a graphic novel or a prose novel or a picture book or a novel in verse.
the story form is the same. At the initial drafting, when you first had the idea of your main character being alone, no one around to interact with and no conversations with subtext or relationships, what craft elements did you take into consideration? I was definitely thinking about all the different kinds of obstacles I could throw at her because one of, and, mm -hmm. and also <laughs> ways to let the reader into her experience, right? So when I wrote the first version in prose, it was in third person voice and past tense. When I rewrote it in poetry, I rewrote it in first person voice and present tense. And that made a huge difference right away. So now we're in her body. We're experiencing mm -hmm. her experience psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, physically, all of that. So it made it much more intimate, but putting it in present tense made it much more tense. It really raised the stakes because she didn't know if she was going to live to the end of the page. And we didn't know if she was going to live to the end of the page. Mm -hmm. Right. So th just those two shifts made a huge difference. Um, one of, I played with, with aging her up and starting her at 14 and going up from there. The book takes place over almost, almost four years. Um, and I didn't think that was as interesting because the, the moment or the, the, the span between 12 and 16, there's so much that happens developmentally. It seemed a lot more interesting to have a 12 year old trying to decide whether to drive a car than have a 14 year old, <laughs> trying to decide, right? Like, or, and getting your period and being alone without your mom and dark. And, and scary night and all of that, like that bridge from childhood to adolescence seemed like a much more interesting place to put the story. But I rewrote the whole thing with her starting at, at 14 to just play with it and test it. And, it. and that opened up some things for me that I ended up keeping when I came back to the, to the middle grade version because I wasn't worrying about my reader, right? If you're writing YA, you don't worry about your reader. You figure your reader's going to handle whatever you're you're putting on the page. But with middle grade, you want to take care of the reader and you want to remember that these are children. So so I felt more free in that draft. And when I went back to middle grade, um, I kept some of that some of the choices that had come out of that freedom where I wasn't censoring myself because I was worrying about my reader. So there were things like that that I did all along that were really, really helpful. Um, I, I used Save the Cat. This was actually before Save the Cat writes a novel had even come out. But I, I, I used all those beats and looked at um, whether or not I had those beats in the story. I looked at the hero's journey, all of that stuff. Um, the, the absence of having a, another person to talk to was really profound. I felt that keenly until I introduced George the dog. And once I introduced George, then I understood why in the film Castaway, they gave Tom Hanks the volleyball of Wilson because suddenly there's somebody for him to play off of. And that's how it felt when yeah. George came in for Maddie, like, Oh, there's someone who she can talk to. There's someone she can respond to or worry about and think about and who can, who can give her things to react to. So there were things like that, that were very technical um, that, that I played with all the way through. But when I was writing the story initially, I was just writing. I was just, I, I, I had the skeleton of Island of the Blue Dolphins to think about. I knew how the story was going to end. I knew the dog was not going to die. I knew that there would be people who would come through town and pose a threat that she would have to deal with. There were certain things I knew, um, but I, but I just, I just wrote from that. It's interesting. You know, you reminded me of her age span in the book. So did that throw off any publishers of her being a middle grade novel um, but her being 16 or is it because she started that way that it naturally grew or, you know, my agent and I talked about that. And, and when she pitched it to publishers, she pitched it as upper middle grade. She used that phrase in the letter. Okay. Um, 
and and it it was never it never came up. So there may have been concerns that that didn't get to me, but but when Simon and Schuster decided they wanted to take it, we just went right from there. Yeah. So you mentioned the the plot and following um, certain beats and the hero's journey. There were many high intensity situations for the main character to navigate. How did you approach? Can you elaborate a little bit more on how you approached plotting specifically with high intensity situations to maintain believability and keep keep the reader with you? I hope it's believable. <laughs> you never know, right? You don't know until other people read it and tell you whether it is or not. Um, yes. And, and there were, this is a place where I worked closely with my editor. Once she had taken it on, she pointed out some things that were really helpful, which, which was that in the draft that she was given ultimately, there were a lot of places where Maddie was reacting to things that were happening to her, like mm -hmm. a tornado comes or the flood mm -hmm. comes or whatever, you know, it's, she's, she's in this reaction mode all the time. One of the things my editor said was, can we give her some times where she is actually trying to do something to change or improve her situation and whether she succeeds or not is a different question, right? But instead of constantly just sort of hitting the ball back, can she serve the ball a few times to use a tennis metaphor? And she suggested the, the scene where Maddie plants a garden and tries to grow food. And the first couple of times she suggested it, I kind of dismissed it. And I was like, eh, nah, not, it doesn't, you know, it didn't catch my imagination. And then and she kept coming back. Like, I'd really love to see her try to grow some food. And so then I dove into that section and wrote that. And it's now one of my favorite scenes it, it, in part because she has a little victory. Like she actually mm -hmm. grows a radish <laughs> and she gets to eat it. And it tastes amazing right after all these years of canned yeah. food. Um, and I, and, and then of course we have to make sure that that doesn't last <laughs> and we have to throw more obstacles in her way. And, it, and it's a short lived victory, but I, I did love, um, I did love that invitation from Kristen, from my editor to give her more agency and let her try some things, um, which I think made her a more interesting character. And it made me look at it through a different lens. Um, but, but I have to say living in Colorado and because I wrote this book over a number of years, everything that happens to her happens here. Um, mm -hmm. And so I've been in Colorado since the mid nineties. We've had tornadoes, we've had floods, we've had incredibly devastating fires um, that, that literally have taken out, you know, thousands of homes in a neighborhood. Uh, mm -hmm. Everything that, everything that feels really devastating <laughs> is stuff that people who have lived in Colorado for any length of time have faced and dealt with. So, so from a believability standpoint, if it seems really extreme, it's it's because you're living somewhere where you're not facing all the things that Coloradans face on a regular basis, which is none of us anymore, right? Like with, right. With climate change and everything, we're, we're seeing extraordinary things everywhere. So, yeah. Right. And climate change was one thing in uh, for me. Um, I used to be an environmental educator. So as I was reading, that was always something in the back of my mind. I was like, oh, is this... You know, is this where we're going? It would also make you as a reader, kids, you know, if they don't experience that, you know, they're not used to tornadoes or they're not used to blizzards and things like that, that they start thinking about what they would do at right. that time, which right. is kind of a, again, you, you know, you, that space on the page lets them think about, oh, well, what would I do in that situation? Exactly. Just, yeah. And we never know if, when, or right. if we would. Right. Uh, so Kind of going off of that, the things that you threw at your character, what was your process for developing her character arc? I really did. I studied Island of the Blue Dolphins really closely. I read it a number of times and I was really looking at, at that 
book and at her situation and thinking about how to emulate some of those things, um, which is why it's mentioned. So uh, it's right up front in the book, like Blue Dolphins mm -hmm. is a piece of the book because I didn't want anybody to think, wow, this sure feels like Island of the Blue Dolphins. Like, no, this this is a direct descendant, right? Um, right. And so that was, I, I really used that as the skeleton and thinking about her there. Maddie is not based on any one person, but I kept putting myself in the situation and saying, if I was 12, what might this be? Or what might I do? Or what would be free, you know, freaky? What would be fun? What would be scary? And I also interviewed a lot of young kids. I had, I had a class of fourth graders beta read for me when it was still in the, in the prose draft and their teacher did a whole mini lesson over a number of weeks with it. And I got great feedback from them. And I asked Mike's daughter and I asked her friends and I, I remember saying to them, if you guys were alone in your town, like, what would you do that no, that you would never do if there was anybody around, you know, and we had a whole great conversation. So I definitely called on other people's experiences. And, and one of the things that came out was, ooh, I would sneak into my friend's houses. <laughs> that didn't occur to me. Somebody else, someone, one of them was like, I would love to go snoop, you know, like I love to snoop in people's houses. And I thought, oh, that would be really cool. And then I also, I asked my daughter, what would you do if you, when you woke up and you discovered that you'd been left behind? And she's like, I would call 911, which had not occurred to me. And I'm like, oh, that's really good. I should call 911. So <laughs> So I was talking to a lot of people about this and and stealing from their their ideas. I think you did a good job with the younger audiences because I do feel like this was a good middle grade voice and you know that very what sets it all off is so realistic like mm -hmm. tricking your parents into where mm -hmm. you're going to be that night mm -hmm. is something so small that every kid's probably done. Yeah. At some point maybe not at 12 but definitely older and then oh my gosh like the warrior in me I would if I had read this when I was 12 I would have never lied to my parents because I would have exactly. thought it's I'm so gonna be funny. left behind yeah <laughs> it's so funny you say that because when I go to school visits where the kids haven't read the book yet and so I'm telling them the premise you can see when I'm saying like yeah they decide to have this secret sleepover and they're gonna you can see their eyes like ooh that sounds like kind of a great idea. Right. And then when I tell them the rest of the story, they're like, Oh, that sounds like a terrible idea. Like it's really, it really does feel like something that could happen. You know, the whole reason that I made her from two families that she, that she's, her parents are divorced was because I had to figure out a plausible way that a kid in the 21st century could be left behind for four years and no one would come back. Right. And I thought, well, the only way that that could ever happen is if her parents are divorced and they each think she's with the other. So they think she's safe and they don't realize for a really long time that she's not. Um, that's where that whole, that's where that whole family structure came from was I needed a device that could set up, you know, a, a, a premise that we could suspend our disbelief and accept. And I do think that as a reader, I felt the shift um, as she aged, you can feel her shift from her interiority. Like I, you know, I, I think maybe I had referenced more the way she dealt with the library books she was getting and the um, references she was making, mm -hmm. but there was work there to, to show her age as well. And to show her growth. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can speak any more to that. Your, your kind of thought yeah. process. on Yeah. And it's funny, I don't remember focusing specifically on that when I was writing alone. I think it came much more naturally as the story evolved, but I'm drafting a novel right now 
that takes place over the same period of time with four different characters. And one of the things I realized, <laughs> so one of the characters, there's a fifth character who's, who's six at the beginning of the book. And I realized in this draft that I'm working on, she was still six at the end of the book, even though like three years have gone by and I'm like, oh wait, dang it. You know, like I was so focused on plot that I had forgotten or I just hadn't gotten to like, oh, these characters actually need to be a lot more mature at the end. And what is that going to look like? And so I'm having to think much more um, specifically about that and look at that much more intentionally than I did with Alone, where it really, maybe because I took so long to write it, <laughs> I got so much older <laughs> as I was writing it. Um, that and and my daughter was the my daughter when I started writing it was this the age well she was a little younger maybe she was eleven when I started writing it and then I mean by the time it came out she was twenty but um but I was also I was watching her grow up and so there may have been more about the you know that was helpful with that and now with this current work in progress that I'm playing with I'm having to be really mindful of okay wait how old are we now and oh I bet they're taller <laughs> like I bet they look yeah. different and think about think about that. So it is something to be aware of for sure. Absolutely. I'm hearing that kind of play on um, using your imagination, putting yourself in that situation and imagining the possibilities of what could happen to make an interesting mm -hmm. story, but also getting back to what the story is for, right? And we're talking about human experiences and pulling from observations and the feedback that you were getting from student people of that age group and what they would right. do and plus your own imagination yeah exactly so you also write novels that are not in verse so how do you choose the structure and the type of writing for your novels so i i kind of have to play with it it's a little bit trial and error and and the story sort of tells you what it wants to be or what it doesn't want to be I have a YA manuscript that is in prose that has been out on submission. And I got stuck at one point and thought, oh, I should rewrite it in verse. Like maybe that'll work again. And I tried it. I wrote the first few chapters. I rewrote them in poetry and I had a CP that one of my critique partners read it and give me some feedback. And ultimately it just didn't work. It didn't suit the story. It didn't work for what I needed. But what that exercise did for me was it opened up the prose for me. It reminded me of all the options I had as a prose writer. So hmm. um, like, oh, this line could stand completely alone in its own paragraph. It doesn't have to be tacked on and things. So I definitely freed me as a prose writer, but it didn't work for the novel. I have another manuscript that's been out on submission that's middle grade, that's in prose. The voice is so specific and the setting is so rich. There was n never a thought that it could be verse. It, it, it's a prose novel. It just is. I never even played with the possibility. So I think, yeah, I mean, the more, it's kind of like, I think of poetry, for me, poetry is my first language. It's my first written language. And I'm much more fluent in poetry. I've become a lot more fluent in prose of late. But when I started writing alone, I was much more fluent in poetry than I am in, than I was in prose. And it's almost like, which language does this story want to be told in? That's kind of what it feels like. So on some level, it's very intuitive. And it's probably taken years to trust that intuition. Yeah. It has. It, it has. Yeah. Yeah. That's I've, true. I've been thinking about that while you both are speaking, because Alexis of the two of us is, she's the poet. I've been doing poetry since I was a little girl, but I never consider myself a poet at all. Yeah. I I remember the where I was and, and exactly what I was doing the first time I said, I am a poet. 
I mean, that felt like a really big thing to say. And I, I was a teacher. I was on a summer program at the Colorado State University Writing Project up in Fort Collins. And I was sitting on a blanket, a picnic blanket under a tree with a bunch of other teachers um, who were part of that session with me. And I had committed for that for that month of professional development. I was going to write a poem a day just as a practice. And I was sitting under that tree and I said out loud to those people, I am a poet. And it felt really huge. Like it, like I remember it very vividly. So it, it, you know, sometimes stuff sneaks up on us and we don't realize yeah. it. Then saying it out loud makes it true. Wow. That's it great. Does. I like that. Yeah. Well, that's like into us talking about our favorite writer's topic, right? Time is such a difficult part of writing. What does your writing routine look like if you have one? And how much time do you devote daily, weekly? So it has really changed in the last 10 or 15 years. When I was writing alone, I was working full time um, as a school administrator and teacher, and I was a single mom. So my writing time was in the evenings when my daughter was at her dad's house and on the weekends. And I had some colleagues who were also writers, teachers and writers, and we would set writing dates and we would come over to somebody's house. And when we sat down, we would all share a goal. Like, what are you working on today? What's your goal today? And we would write. So it was a lot less, it was in the spaces in between, right? Like I was mothering, I was teaching all of that. And I was writing on the periphery and, and in the spaces in between. Now I am retired from education. I am an empty nester. I am self-employed and and work full time with my husband. He has a CPA firm. He's a CPA, which affords me an enormous amount of flexibility. So I get to prioritize it in ways that I didn't before. So it really depends on what my goals are. Um, we were talking about accountability and accountability partners earlier. I have an accountability partner, um, the author, Nicole M. Hewitt, who has her first novel and verse coming out next year, the song for Orphan's Garden. You got to look for it. Maybe she can, you can get her on okay, I will. Um, when that book comes out because yes. it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's a gorgeous book, but she and I share a spreadsheet and we have a weekly phone call and we, we get on the spreadsheet together and we get on the phone together and we write down our goals and we hold each other accountable and we talk about what we've done that week. And that has been huge. I don't think either one of us <laughs> would have any anything close to as much as we've gotten written if we didn't have that time that we had dedicated to holding each other accountable. So there are times when I write many hours in a day and there are days when I don't write anything. My goal right now, because I'm under deadline, is to write six days a week. And usually what I find is when I sit down, once I start, I go for a long time. So I don't have to, I don't necessarily set a time limit, but there have been times when my goal might be 30 minutes a day, or my goal might be two poems a day, five days a week or something like that. I try to set mm -hmm. really smart goals. You know, the acronym SMART. I try to set SMART goals that are really easy to measure so that I know if I'm hitting them or not. And I try to craft them in such a way that if I hit them, it's going to propel me further. So if my goal is to write six days a week, then, and I sit down to write, I, you know, I can say that I met that goal if I only write for five minutes, but I never do. I always go longer. So I, yeah. those kinds of little structures are super helpful for my brain and the way I like to work. And, and the other thing I've learned, and this is after 56 years of being alive on the planet is that even when I'm not at my desk and I'm not, my hands are not on the keyboard or there's not a pen in my hand, I'm always writing. I am thinking about mm -hmm. it all the time. And when I go to bed at night, sometimes if I've got a conundrum that I'm struggling with in a story, I put that in the forefront of my brain as I'm falling asleep. 
I often wake up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning with solutions or with, <clears throat> with ideas. When I drive around with my husband, I'm often like, okay, can I just brainstorm with you out loud today? You know, can I just talk this? So it's even when I'm not doing it, I'm, I'm working on it and I'm doing it. And, and understanding that that's part of the creative process has been really liberating for me because then I don't beat myself up when I'm not sitting at my desk or when I'm, or when I'm hiking or when I'm fishing or doing whatever it's all of that is filling the creative cup. And all of it is, is, is enriching the colors on the palette that I get to paint with, right? Like being out in the world and living life is making me a more interesting writer because I'm, I'm learning interesting new things. So the answer to your question is it really depends on what phase I'm in and what my goals are at the time. Yeah. I really like your idea of, well, two ideas. I like your spreadsheet and calling a friend. That's a great idea. I start, I, I have one group that where the 12, we started as 12 minutes a day, I think yeah, and we've kind of just great. dropped off, but it was so good for a while. Um, yeah really yep. need to get it back because we had a yep. spreadsheet and we would look at each other. We didn't call, but that would be, that would be kind of cool. Yep. Um, and then the other thing I really like is that you mentioned everything that happens inside your head is still writing. And I think yep. that that's something that I've come to terms with too, because I think I'm so busy all the time. Yep. I'm constantly thinking about my book Yep. and I'll write down ideas and I, yep. I need to count that as writing. Totally. You know? I love the voice recording feature on my phone mm, because mm -hmm. sometimes like I'll even hear pieces of poetry, lines of poetry or something. And, and I can just record it, you know, right then wherever I am and then transcribe later and do whatever I want with it or not. Like sometimes I don't do anything with it, right. but at least I've, ca I've right. captured it. That's great. So you mentioned Save the Cat. Uh, are there any craft books that you read or podcasts you listen to? Yes. Um, what would you I, recommend for writers? I love this question. So I, I, I pulled a bunch out because I love this question. So one of the first books I ever read that I love is Wild Mind by Natalie Goldberg. It's been around a really long time. It was the thing that set me free as a writer. Like she is so about uninhibited writing and getting into your wild mind and getting the sensors out of there. And um, her first book was called Writing Down the Bones, um, which I also love, but Wild Mind is is my favorite of all of her stuff, Natalie Goldberg. So I really love that one. For people interested in poetry, Ted Kuzier, the former poet laureate of the United States, um, he's a Nebraska poet. He has a book called The Poetry Home Repair Manual, which if if I could only use one book, this would be the one. He is such a lovely person and he comes through the pages and it is absolutely a masterclass in poetry. And it's filled with mentor poems, um, and he breaks it down beautifully. And I want to hand this book to anyone who wants to be a poet or is a poet or wants to write verse novels. It's, it's great. A book that absolutely took the top of my head off and, and made me marvel at the world is called The Science of Storytelling by Will mm -hmm. Storr. He goes, it's, this is like a deep dive into both the neurology of the brain and the anthropology of story. So where Lisa Crone leaves off in, um, in Story Genius, where she talks about how our, our minds are wired for story, he takes he this is like the this is like the PhD version of that. And it is so fascinating and it is so insightful into how our brains process story and why we love story and how understanding the neurology of our brains can help us as writers craft stories that we can't put down. So this the science of storytelling by Will Store is extraordinary. This next one is one that the I did a, a writing a book club, a book study with some other authors, and a lot of them really hated it. <laughs> so grain of salt, but 
this book, it, it's called Several Short Sentences About Writing. And the, the author's name is Verlin Klinkenborg. Whether, whether you like it or not, I found it extraordinarily helpful in terms of how I was thinking about crafting sentences and the lengths of sentences. And I annotated the heck out of it because I had so many ahas as I was reading it. But several of my author buddies really didn't care for it. So, so check it out and see what you think. It made me a better writer for sure. One that my accountability partner, no, did she recommend it? No, I think it was Jessica Vitalis, my, um, the author Jessica Vitalis. She recommended this to me, Write Your Novel from the Middle by James Scott Bell. It's super tiny. Like I read it in one sitting, but it was such a helpful discussion of plot. And, and I'm, I haven't been a big outliner, but I needed to be because I was, I was putting together this project to, to propose. And it was really, it was extraordinarily helpful. And I wrote a very long detailed outline based on this book that I found really satisfying and really fun. And then the one that I'm listening to right now, and, and I, I'm listening to the audiobook, but I also have the hardcover is called The Creative Act, A Way of Being by Rick Rubin. And I, and he reads it himself and it is a fabulous audiobook. It's very much about creativity and it's about human creativity and what the creative process is and how it shows up and how it works. And it's such an affirmation for creative people. There's not a lot in here that is surprising to me, maybe because I've been doing this for so long and I'm halfway through my life, hopefully only halfway through my life, but but it's so affirming and it's so beautiful and it's so inspiring. And every time I listen to it, it makes me want to get back to work. Um, so I can't recommend this one highly enough. This, this would be a, a great gift for anyone you know who's a creative person. Like, And it's not necessarily specific to writing, right? It could be a painter or a musician. He works with a lot of different kinds of creatives. But it's called The Creative Act, A Way of Being by Rick Rubin. And then I do listen to a lot of podcasts. But as I was looking through my list on my phone, the ones that are specific to writing and craft, I listen to a lot of podcasts about books more than I do about craft specifically. So like I listen to Fresh Air with Terry Gross, but I tend to pick the the writers. I tend to listen to the ones that are authors. I listen to the New York Times Book Review podcast, which I find really interesting because they have such deep discussions about books. I listen to The Yarn with um, Travis Jonkers and Colby Sharp. I listen to the Reading Culture podcast. I listen to the Children's Book Review Growing Readers podcast, which is really interesting. These these are all podcasts that tend to interview authors. I really like Jennifer Lofren's podcast, Literati Cast. She's an author with the Andrea Brown Literary Agency, and she has a really great podcast that she just started making new episodes again. And I think it'd be it's really helpful, especially for authors who are pre-published and maybe querying or in the process of querying newly agented. There's a lot of wisdom there. I love Padre Gotuma's podcast, Poetry Unbound. It's a really short, like 12 to 20 minutes long. He's an Irish poet and he's he deconstructs one poem in every episode. And it's beautiful. He has a gorgeous Irish dialect anyway, so it's lovely to listen to him. But he's so wise. He has a deep theological background and he's got such wisdom and it's a gorgeous, it's very, uh, it's just beautiful, Poetry Unbound. And then Sarah Enney's podcast, First Draft, which I don't think she's been making any for the last couple of years, but she has a, it's, she has a bunch of episodes. It's all about publishing and writing. It's not necessarily kidlit focused specifically, but there's a lot of great stuff there. And she had a mini series within First Draft called Track Changes that was all about the path to publication from getting an agent through publishing the book that was really, really helpful. Oh, and 
Um, Courtney Mom, M-A-U-M, her book, Before and After the Book Deal, a must read. Before and After the Book Deal. I, I didn't find it. And it came out this at right around the time that I got my book deal. And so I didn't have the benefit of reading it in advance. But it's it's a must read for anybody who's interested, pre-published or not. It's very helpful insight into the industry. It doesn't have a lot of kidlit stuff. She's not she's an adult author and she doesn't have a lot of insight into the kidlit world. But everything that she talks about is applicable. I'm to like yeah. frantically writing all these down right now. <laughs> So I know I'll be able to listen book. later. I can take a it's picture so... of the stack and email it to you. <laughs> yes. Like it's these I love, I love it. Listeners, we'll try to put it down in the description. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we will look it all up and link it in the description. There you go. And if you we can don't make, sorry. A, make a little message in the beginning that says, get a get a notebook before you start listening to this podcast. You're gonna want to yes. write this down. <laughs> yes, you will. There's so yeah, many good ones. So Reed's Rank Kidlet is all about growth. We're reading to improve our writing craft, um, no matter where we are in our writing journeys. So what would you say you have learned from writing alone? And is there anything craft lesson that you would take from that experience writing alone into whatever your next project would be? A couple of things come to mind right away. The first thing is, it is super clear to me that people who are successful as writers are the people who show up showing up to conferences, showing up to your accountability partner calls, showing up to your desk, <laughs> um, showing up to opportunities to learn from and listen to other people who are doing what you want to be doing. I, I feel like I've been very lucky, but every time I've been lucky, it's because I showed up and put myself in a place where luck could happen to me. Does that make sense? Like, mm -hmm. like going to the conferences and meeting people and and sharing my goals with people who could help hold me accountable and all of those things and meeting that editor who ended up introducing me to the agent. Like if I almost didn't go to that workshop because I was tired and it was the end of the day and I, but I was like, okay, I should do it. Right. And I showed up and good things happened. So, so I feel like the, the mantra for anybody who's ambitious about anything, you got to show up <laughs> and you got to be ready to take advantage of whatever those opportunities are, whether it's meeting somebody who becomes a networking ally or whether it's learning something you really needed to know that you didn't realize you didn't know that that humility goes a long way. I also think that, and I, I, this George Saunders, uh, um, a swim in the pond in the rain. That's another craft book that I should have put on this, on the list. We, um, <laughs> so funny. It was our last, last author. Oh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> yes. okay. and at the same no. time I had just bought that book. So yes. Um, Okay, so I listened to the audiobook for that one too. And it's so great because they have wonderful actors read each of the stories that he deconstructs. Oh, so, wow. and, and plus it's great. Like I, I remember doing that one as I was working a jigsaw puzzle and I, so that I could just really listen and concentrate. But he talks in that book about, about insisting on satisfaction and not passing by something that doesn't deeply satisfy you. And that helped me. You talked about honing that instinct. It really helped me now. I'm, I'm much faster at, at addressing issues in my stories because I, I've tuned into that instinct of like, I read a line and I'm like, mm, that just doesn't quite satisfy me. Instead of reading it four more times and, and then realizing I need to work on it, I'm going to trust that feeling right now. And I'm going to work on it right now. And I'm going to work on it until I feel deeply satisfied. Um, and George sort of gave me permission by articulating that to pay attention to that. But I've also learned that fatigue is the enemy of excellence. And it's really easy to mistake fatigue for satisfaction. 
Does that make sense? You don't want to mistake fatigue for satisfaction. Like, yeah, I'm, it's fine. It's good enough. Right. Like that's fatigue. That's not satisfaction. And if you want to create really excellent art, you've got to, you've got to notice like fatigue and go, okay, I'm tired. I need to take a break. I need to step away. I need to go do something else for a few days and come back as opposed to thinking that you're satisfied when really you're just tired. (laughs) So show up, work until you are deeply satisfied and resist mistaking fatigue for satisfaction. Those are the big, big takeaways that I learned from alone. I love those three. I need to show up. That's my problem. (laughs) I'm not showing up. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your writing wisdom, talking about writing with us. We really appreciate you. Are, are we going to have any more of your books out into the world? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I, so here, they're speaking of perseverance, right? So I have had, I've had three manuscripts out on submission for the, for over a year. One of them has been out on submission for over two years. So just because you you write a book and it finds an audience and you have some success with it doesn't mean you're you're not still right down in the trenches querying and hoping. I am under contract for a new book that is uh, has not yet been announced, but for readers who loved Alone and who may have some questions that about Alone that are not answered in the book, um, I think you'll be really happy with this this next Ooh. one. And so hopefully it will be announced soon, and I'll get to tell you more about it. But, um, but yeah, so I'm working on lots of stuff. Great. Good. Well, we look forward to seeing more. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was delightful. Thanks so much for your great questions. Thank you for listening. Join our community on Substack links below. 